I could relate very well to part of that song. I hope my father can relate to it very well as well on the other side. Don't tell me any more good can't come out of Nebraska. Well, this is it. We get on today. We got to wait till next year. I had thought to spending some time with more of the meaning of this particular day and God's plan today, but uh, thankfully Gordon kind of covered that some this morning. Not that it hurts to repeat, but um, that means I don't have to do it. Maybe we should start assigning sermonettes and sermons by topic so that uh, I wouldn't steal his stuff, <coughs> vice versa and so on, but uh, we never do that. I leave it to each man to determine between him and his God and his study uh, what he wishes to speak about, and it's it's almost amazing sometimes to me, and has been for many years, that so often the sermonette and the sermon will dovetail so closely you'd think it was planned. Uh, I'm sure we've all experienced that. It wasn't planned by men. Worldwide never did that. Well, they did come to the point in, at the feast where they'd say, speak on something along the feast lines or the meaning of the feast, and they'd tell everybody that. And then everybody had trouble keeping from walking on each other. Uh, but that's the only planning that I ever saw in all my years in the church, in the ministry. And we certainly don't do it here. Uh, I have enough trouble figuring out what I'm going to talk about, much less trying to tell everybody else. <laughs> we don't have time and energy for that kind of planning. But uh, each man must go to God and must find what God once said. That takes a lot of prayer and a lot of thought and sometimes a lot of study to determine what is best to give. We don't want to waste your time. We don't want to waste God's time. And for that matter, don't want to waste our time. I always pray God put on my tongue what you once said. And sometimes... I might stray from that somewhat, but it's always available, and uh, I hope that most of the time that's the way it comes out. Well, after that ceremony of laying on of hands uh, and special music, if we got those two messages, I think I'm done. Uh, we we don't need to go further. You know, if we if we could really get. What we do here, we wouldn't have to hear it over and over, one for one thing. And, uh, you know, it would be nice just to say something once and never have to go back there again. Never say it again. Wouldn't it be nice as a parent if you could just tell your children one time, Honey, don't touch that. And it would never, ever happen again. Or don't do that, and you'd never have to worry that it would ever happen again. That's not what human nature and free moral agency 
and all the things God has given us to work with and to overcome is about. So we do have to hear things over and over, and some things I've been hearing for an awful lot of years now, and I still, still need reminded, still need to know them, whatever they might be. Well, I'm going to go back to Jeremiah 25, where we left off last time. Didn't I get that far? <clears throat> No, I better not go that far ahead. I, we would miss an awful lot, but maybe that's where we ought to be. <clears throat> but we're still just here on chapter 5. We left off, off with the thought in chapter 4 that the church overall and Israel as well, when these troubles hit, are going to be like a woman in travail with the pain of childbirth suddenly catching her and the voice of anguish, anguish which comes with the first child, which is far more difficult usually than the second, third, fourth, fifth, and tenth. There was a lady I read about the other day that had just had her sixteenth, and she was looking forward to more. They said she's a very organized individual, and she delegates well. I certainly hope so. And she says, Woe is me now, for my soul is wearied because of murderers. And I think that applies both to those who are murdering God's people spiritually and to those who will murder spiritual Israelites and physical Israelites in the months and years to come. So that sort of sets the stage then for chapter 5. And since the church and the nation is falling into this kind of anguish, this kind of pain and difficulty, what, how does God respond? He says, run you! to and fro, through the seats of streets of Jerusalem. Now, this isn't a paced walk through Jerusalem. We're down to run through the streets. This thing is getting close. The destroyer of the Gentiles is on his way, as we read in chapter 4, verse 7. So run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, and see now, and know, and seek in the broad places thereof, Look far and wide, in other words. If you can find a man, not a whole batch of them, but if he can find a man, if there be any that executes judgment, that seeks the truth, and I will pardon it. Remember Genesis 18, where Abraham went up to look Sodom over, Gomorrah? to see what the true state was. And he looked it over, and he approached God and said, God, would you save this city if I could find 50 righteous people? Yeah, I'd do that. God could look down. He could tell real easily how many there were. Abraham had a difficult, diff, more difficult chore, you know. God said, yeah, I he didn't have any trouble agreeing to that. Abraham calculated a second. He says, I'm going to push this a little. I said, God, what if I find 45? And God said, yeah, I can handle that. He didn't seem too angry with that. How about 40? Yeah, yeah, if you can find 40, I'll save the city, no problem. 
Now he's getting a little bolder. You know, he came down 5-5. Five, five. And he says, I'll push it pretty good now. How about if I find 30? Drops it 10. Maybe God wouldn't notice it. Instead of 5, he dropped it 10. Yeah? Okay. And he always sort of implores God. Now, don't, don't be upset about this, but how about I find 20? Yeah, I'll go along with that. That's okay. Abraham must have begun sweating about then. Well, Lord, how about ten? Yeah, I can handle that. Why was God so easy here? I've never seen any many examples in the Bible, if I can think of any, where, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six times he brought it down. I'm a little afraid sometimes to ask God once in some things, and then some things, um, you know, maybe two or three, but six times? That's kind of pushing it because you don't know where God is. You know, you don't want to incur his wrath, and yet you still would like to pad your bed a little bit. God knew there was only one there all along. Couldn't find ten. But now we're at the end time. And God says, go through the church, if you will. See if you can find a man, if there be any that executes judgment, that seeks the truth, and I will pardon it. And though they say, the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. They'll talk about the living God. But it's lip service. It doesn't really mean anything in their heart or in their conduct, their actions. And God is not interested in lip service. It says, not the hearers of the word, but the doers shall be justified. So they can say the Lord lives, but he says, surely they swear falsely. O Lord, are not your eyes upon the truth? He says... We need to find somebody who will execute judgment that seeks the truth. And Jeremiah says, well, your mind, your eyes are on the truth. John 4.24, remember, says, worship him in spirit and in truth. So this whole thing has to do with attitude, spirit, and the right, correct way of going about it. If you have the truth, but you don't have a correct attitude, you can't get the job done. If you have a correct attitude, but don't have the truth, you can't get the job done. You see, there are a lot of Protestants or Christians that I've met who have seemingly wonderful attitudes. They're loving, they're giving, they're serving, they're helping. But they aren't Christian because they're missing the other half of the equation, and that is truth. Then we have people who have the truth, but maybe they lack greatly in spirit and attitude and approach. So you have those so-called Christians out there who don't have the truth, and we condemn them as not being Christian, and indeed they're not. But we are in just as great a danger of falling in the other ditch. 
We can have the truth, but not have the attitude to go with it. And in either case, we will fail. It's just the way it is. You've got to get the two together. Worship him in spirit and truth. Then you can say, I'm a Christian. Now, we're still struggling with our attitudes, aren't we? And we're also still struggling for truth. Wherever we can find that we need to amend our ways, we're looking for that. So, God is looking for people right now who will do that. You have stricken them, but they have not grieved. See, here's something about attitude. He says, your eyes are on the truth, and you've stricken us, and yet we've not grieved. We've not taken it seriously enough to change our attitudes. You have consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than a rock. They have refused to return. Now, I don't want to pick on one sex or another, but it just flashed into a, to my mind. I remember a congregation years and years ago where we had several older women who had their hair cut very short, you know, almost like mine in the back. And I read 1 Corinthians about a woman having her hair long as a glory. And I could, you could just see the jawlines setting. Uh, it was just an obvious physical, uh, that mind clamped down, and right as the mind shut down, the jaw came up. And I watched it over a period of time, because I would come back, back to it occasionally. And they never failed to have the same reaction. They'd been given the truth, but it grieved them. They would not accept correction. They set their jaws, and that's the way it's going to be. I don't care what you say, it's not going to change. Men can be just as stubborn, stiff-necked, and rebellious. I'm not picking on the girls here. Uh, at least not singling you out. You're half of it. The men are the other half. Maybe I'll have a flash of inspiration here and I'll think of something about men as well. Let me look around the audience here a little bit. Maybe something will, maybe something will grab me. <clears throat> they have refused to return. Sometimes we are so stubborn, stiff-necked, and rebellious. And that's what God has said Israel is. And he uses the example quite a few times of just planting all four feet, pulling against the rope, and will not be led, will not be pulled, must be dragged. That is attitude. That is attitude. It is not the meekness and the humility that a little child has. They're generally willing and eager. I just had a little boy come up to me just before services. 
he, he, well, he walks pretty well, but he doesn't read yet. But he had himself a fine new Bible. Oh, he was so excited about that book. Opened it up, probably showed it around a bunch of you too. I wouldn't be a bit surprised. Here was his name in that. It was given unto him at this feast by his parents. He was so happy with that. And, well, he should be. I hope he's still that happy with the Word of God 10, 12 years from now. And maybe he will be, getting us an early start, that's for sure. He does not realize, he does not know what he does not know. That's just a shiny new book to him, and he does, has no comprehension of the implications it will have in a few years in his life. And it may be some of the things that happened to him already are because his parents have read it. And they're doing what it says. And he's already been being implicated, but he doesn't put the two together yet. But there will come a time in his life when he'll put those two storylines together and say, oh, that's why I got spanked. That's why they did what they did to me. Then we'll see if he still has the attitude of a little child, or if he begins to take on a little bit of stiffness here. It might even cracks when I... <clears throat> Therefore I said, Surely these are poor. They are foolish, for they know not the way of the eternal, nor the judgment of their God. He says, God says they refuse to take correction, they're stiff-necked, they're rebellious, they will not listen. All they'll hear, they won't listen. I think Gordon said something like that. I, did I hear an echo here this morning? So Jeremiah began to try to find an excuse for them. Surely they're, they're poor, they're foolish, they don't know the way. I will get me to the great men. See, there, there's got to be a way that we can find out how to help these people. I'll get me to the great men and we'll speak to them. We had what we thought were great men some years ago, didn't we? They were called evangelists. Some of them even call themselves leading evangelists. I mean, being an evangelist isn't good enough. You've got to be the leading evangelist. I'll speak to them. For they have known the way of the eternal and the judgment of their God. But these have altogether broken the yoke and burst the bonds. Even though they may have received, or achieved a certain status, a certain standing, a certain understanding, they've broken the bonds and the yoke of the covenant of God. They've set it aside. A lot of them have. A lot of the, quote, great men, unquote, that we had have departed from the way. Wherefore, a lion out of the forest shall slay them, and a wolf of the evening shall spoil them. A leopard shall watch over their cities. Everyone that goes out there shall be torn in pieces because their transgressions are many and their backslidings are increased. Now, I don't know that this is necessarily physical animals that will kill people. But remember back in chapter 4, verse 7, the lion has come up from his thicket and the destroyer of the Gentiles is on his way. So 
men who have the characteristics of lions, leopards, and bears, and that kind of predatory animals are used as types of evil men who will bite, tear, and devour. There will come people upon them if they depart from the yoke that God has put on and pull back against it and break the bonds of the covenant that they agreed to. We are bond servants in bondage, doulos. We voluntarily put ourselves in bondage to keep the new covenant. We had a girl yesterday who said, I'm, I'm dead to my old way of thinking, my way of living, my way of acting. I want to live your way. So we pushed her under the water. I thought about holding her under for two, three minutes. To be sure she's dead. But I relented because I figured, well, if we let her up, we know she's still physically alive, and that way we can determine if there's spiritual life there in time, because we'll know by the fruits, won't we? You repent and get baptized, you might even get talked about. Used as an example. Don't whether you want to take the plunge, some of you young'uns or not. No, it's just simply a dedication and a commitment to God's way and coming up to live a new life, a new way, and willingly taking on the yoke and pulling where God wants the load carried. That's what it all amounts to. We become beasts of burden, of service, pulling for others. Why does an animal get trained to the yoke? So he can pull a plow that will produce food for others. He becomes a beast of burden, has a saddle or whatever rigging is put on, so that he might be able to pull goods that will benefit others, or to pull a wagon that will carry food or whatever people need for them. We have de dedicated our, way, our lives to a way of service, of giving, as a living sacrifice. That's the reason we pull her up. We could have kept her under there, had answered to the local authorities. But we let them up because they're dedicating themselves to a life of service. Voluntary slavehood, if you will. But there are people who were leaders who accepted that yoke and that bond, and now they've thrown it off. Can you go there for the answers? Can you go to some of them who are now preaching in a Sunday church? Or who are way out on a limb in doctrinal areas? And some of them are that. And some are still in worldwide keeping Sunday. I guess that's a Protestant church now anyway. God says it's going to be tough on them. Verse 7, how shall I pardon you for this? How can I forgive you for this, God says? When you dedicate your life to my purposes and say you will willingly submit and you will serve and give, and your life from now on is to be a sacrifice for others. And then I offer you all these promises to get you to do that, and now you go back on your promise, how can I forgive you and give you what 
I promise. Cause and effect. Your children have forsaken me and swore by them that are no gods. Doing things, bowing down to things and ways and thinking that has nothing to do with the living God. When I had fed them to the full, God began to bless the church. Now people, I can remember back in the early 50s, late 50s, early 60s, people who were far more dedicated to trying to get their lives straightened out in every respect than people were doing in the 70s and 80s and 90s till the present. They really were more sincerely working on it than most people have been of recent date. They were changing their lives, not just floating along like we came to be. When I had fed them to the full, and God did bless, we had more healings, we had great growth in numbers, uh, the work itself was booming forth, and God had fed to the full. They then committed adultery. They began to look around and do things that were not faithful to God and his plan and his purpose. They got sidetracked into other paths, back alleys. Uh, he uses that kind of an analogy here. And assembled themselves by groups in the harlot's houses. Now this doesn't necessarily mean physical adultery, though it included it, and there was plenty of that. But it also means getting involved in things that take them away from God in any way on a spiritual level. They were as fed horses in the morning. Everyone neighed after his neighbor's wife. Like a, a horse that's all up in the pen, gets his hay every day, has nothing to do but stand there and munch hay and think about the mare's out there somewhere. He says, that's the way he typifies Israel, how they came to be. They weren't really working. You know, a working horse is taken out of the paddock or the pen or corral, whatever, saddled up with all that gear and has to go out and plow all day. Now, when he's busy and involved, he doesn't have time to think about mares. But when you let up and you just leave him in the corral and feed him, he doesn't have anything else to do. That's all he's got to do is sniff the wind and look for mares. Maybe we need to get back to work. Shall I not visit for these things, God says? He's a jealous God. He wants our attention. He wants our focus. And shall not my soul be avenged on such a nation as this? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. That is not an idle threat. It's just what God is going to do. Go you upon her walls and destroy. He goes from an analogy of a horse to walking on her walls. But we're talking about Jerusalem. We're talking about the church. We're talking about spiritual walls we are to be building. We have big holes and breaches in the walls. And he says the breaches have to be filled. But... God is going to destroy, make bigger breaches in the walls. 
Now, he's promised a wall of defense around those who will be faithful. We've read that in Haggai and other places. But here he's talking about tearing down her walls. Go upon her walls and destroy, but make not a full end. Don't destroy them completely. Leave enough seed for the millennium, because I'm going to redo things. Take away her battlements, for they are not the Lord's. Whatever defenses, whatever weapons she has, take them away. She's not depending on God. He is not the one she looks to for her protection and everything else that she needs. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have dealt very treacherously against me, says the Eternal. They have ignored the Lord and said, It is not he. Neither shall evil come upon us. Neither shall we see sword nor famine. Now you look at the churches today, and who do they blame this problem on? They blame it on Satan. Some of them blame it on the Laodiceans, who is anybody but them. Very few understand that God is the one that has done this to the church. That God is the one that's about to do it to Israel. Now, he may be using evil men. He may be using Satan like he did with Job. But believe it that God is behind it. God summoned Satan. said, hey, come here. Satan wasn't there accusing Job at that particular time. God said, hey, come here. Have you noticed my servant Job? Well, yeah. He wasn't too interested in him. He was obeying God. Satan didn't like that. He didn't, didn't want to be around Job because he says if you resist the devil, he will free, flee from you. Doesn't he in James? So Satan had fled from Job, basically. God said, no, come here, come here, I want you to look. See? Yeah. <laughs> Tell you what, though, take that protection away, he'll curse you. We know the whole story there, so I won't go through it all, but he lost everything. Sitting there on the ashes with boils all over his body. None of us have gone through or even begun to go through what Job went through, and the man never wavered at all. What an incredible story for us. I've never had one boil. I've had an ulcerated lip or, you know, sore in my nose. Big deal. But they say, it's not God. It's the devil. It's the Laodiceans. It's those preachers. We're not going to see sword and a famine. How many organizations in the church today would tell you, we're going to have sword and famine in this group? How many of you heard preach that? Has anybody... Right here? <laughs> well, yeah, to some degree at least. You don't hear that. If, if you're here 
and you follow me, everything will be okay. That's what they preach. It's not God. I'm following God, and I'm okay, and you will be too. If you want to hear that, go back there. There's dozens of places you can hear that. You will not hear it here. We will see sword and famine if we don't repent and turn to God with our whole hearts. I'll tell you that right now. And you'd better only follow me as I follow Christ. If I'm following Christ, then you'd better follow. But if I'm not, don't do it. The prophets shall become wind, and the word is not in them. Thus it shall be done to them. The prophets that say these things, in other words. It's not God. There's no danger to us. We're okay. Peace, peace. He says, they will become wind. Just so much through the air. The word of God is not in them. Now, they think it is, don't they? Doesn't everyone think he's preaching the word of God? Well, I would assume so. What else would he be thinking? But is he? Is it his idea? Let's see some proof. Let's see some scripture that shows what God says. I think if you were to challenge most of the ministry in the church today to show you what God is doing right now, what he's accomplishing, what his purposes are, they could not do it. Now, they'll give you their idea of what God is doing, and he's doing it through them. If the people will pray and pay enough, they're going to preach the gospel around the world as a great witness, and then the end will come. They'll give you their opinion of what God is doing, but can they prove it? See, anything that I'm telling you doesn't depend on me, does it? Does anything I'm t telling you depend on me? No. It depends on you. You must turn to God. You must repent. You must seek God and worship him in spirit and in truth. That's what this is all about. Now, the things I will tell you God is doing, I, I can show you in black and white. I will punish you. I will send sword and famine. I will send the lion, the leopard, the bear. And I will eat you up and chew on you until you repent. I can show you what God's doing. Because his book says it. But not many could back up their focus with Scripture and have it synchronize with what we see going on. Now, they, they can show you Scriptures as to why they think what they are doing is right, but it won't synchronize with all these Scriptures about what God says He's doing. That's where the rub comes. 
Wherefore, thus says the eternal God of hosts, Because you speak this word, behold, I will make my words in your mouth fire, and this people wood, and it shall devour them. He tells the ministry, this, this sends chills up and down my spine, just to, to focus on it for a second. He is saying that what the ministers are telling the people will ignite a fire in those people and devour them. Now that is scary. How is God going to do it? Lo, I will bring a nation upon you from far, O house of Israel, says the Eternal. It is a mighty nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you don't know, neither understand what they say. Foreign languages, foreign troops will come in. Their quiver is as an open sepulcher. You look at that quiver of arrows on their back, and you might as well just be looking into your own coffin. That's how deadly they are. They won't be with bows and arrows in this day and age. That was the, some of the military machinery of that day. It'll be things that make far bigger holes quicker than what the bows and arrows would do. They shall eat up your harvest and your bread, which your sons and your daughters should eat. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds, they shall eat up your vines and your fig trees. They shall impoverish your defense cities wherein you trusted with the sword. You want to be in any of our cities that we say we're going to protect? Don't worry. We'll protect you. We'll be there. We'll take care of you. They couldn't even protect and help very quickly after just one little windstorm, much less a firestorm of enemy nations. Is there any help there? No, these strangers are going to come in and devour everything in the land. There won't be anything to eat. Nevertheless, in those days, says the Eternal, I will not make a full end with you. Man, I am relieved. It's only going to kill 90%. <laughs> there is a little hope there that there will be a remnant saved. But if you're lined up again, have you ever played dodgeball when you were a kid? Everybody lines up against the gym wall, and you got people out there throwing balls at you, and eventually everybody gets hit. And you're not any more protected than anyone else, are you? You might be able to dodge and wiggle and squirm your way away from it with more alacrity than most, but sooner or later, somebody you're not watching is going to hit you. And when 90% of a people are going to be killed or taken captivity, it's going to be tough to survive on your own, isn't it? It'll be awfully tough. And if you're wiggling, dodging, and jerking away in order to try to save yourself, what about your wife? What about your three, four, five, six kids? You can't even save yourself, much less them. I mean, if they line you up all against the wall and start throwing the balls at you, it's all you can do to stay out of the way of one. You can't help the kids. They're on their own. They're talking about a major annihilation. 
And it shall come to pass when you shall say, Why does the Lord our God all these things to us? People will begin to wake up and say, Why is God doing all this? We thought we'd be out of here. We thought we'd be protected. Why is God doing this to us? Weren't we in part of this organization? Didn't he say if we followed him that everything would be just fine? Our ticket was punched. We didn't have anything to worry about. Peace, peace, brother. Won't those people be dismayed and shocked when they find... Let me back up just a minute. Won't we be dismayed and shocked when we find ourselves there? That happens to us? I don't want to point at they. It could be you, it could be me, just as easy as anyone else. Now we have a lot of knowledge that is important. But if we don't act on that knowledge, if we don't do something about it, we're going to be left behind. Doesn't do any good to be here. Doesn't do any good to hear this unless you do something about it. I might as well just be out blowing wind at a tree unless it falls in ears that are willing to take it into the mind and make a commitment to do something about it. If it's just words, it means nothing. It's got to have action. In fact, it's even dangerous to hear these scriptures read if we don't intend to do something about it. Because God will hold us responsible and accountable for what knowledge we have. So we need to be very, very thankful for what God is showing us in the scriptures about what is coming and what can be done about it because there is a way of escape. There is a way to avoid all this stuff that Jeremiah is talking about. It's there. It's here. So it is a great advantage to be able to go through it and hear the questions God asks, hear the questions Jeremiah asks, and then hear the questions that people who will get caught in this ask. And the answers that Jeremiah, through, from God, give. There's an awful lot of hope there when you know what is about to happen, you know how it will occur, you know who will escape and who will not escape. Isn't that an incredible leg up, brethren? To have that kind of knowledge? What if you're in one of Hitler's gas chambers and someone told you, whispered in your ear just before you went in there, that there was an access door right at the back on the corner that they sometimes forget to lock and it's where they shovel the bodies out after they're done gassing? Oh, yeah? Where would you go when you got in that chamber? Front and center, right there. Where's that door? Check it. Be a beautiful leg up, wouldn't it? If you knew there was a possible way to escape. You wouldn't hesitate, man. You'd knock people down getting back there to check it out. If you had a friend, you'd say, hey, 
Wherefore does the Lord our God do all these things to us? Then shall you answer them. You got a question? Here's the answer. Like as you have forsaken me and served strange gods in your land, so shall you serve strangers in a land that is not yours. There's a simple answer to the question. You wanted to serve other gods? I'm going to send you to serve other gods. And they'll treat you just like other gods would. Declare this in the house of Jacob. Publish it in Judah, saying, Hear now this, O foolish people, and without understanding, which have eyes and see not, which have ears and hear not. We got all the physical equipment to be able to take in what we need to know. And it comes across, it's in the airwaves, we even get visuals at times, but it doesn't penetrate. It, it doesn't click. Fear you not me, says the Eternal. Will you not tremble at my presence, which have placed the sand for the bound of the sea by a perpetual decree? that it cannot pass, and though the waves thereof toss themselves, yet can they not prevail. Though they roar, yet can they not pass over it. Have you ever stood along a coastline with a fierce gale blowing, and maybe 10, 12, 14, 20-foot surf coming in? It's scary. stood there and felt the power and the crashing and the very trembling of the whole beach as those waves came pounding in. I've gone out in the surf to body surf. And, you know, the waves that come in, six, eight footers maybe, no big deal, I think I can catch that one. Then you look up and you say, ooh, no. Because <laughs> here comes one twice as high every once in a while. I'm not sure I'm ready for this. Paddle like mad, you know. And then it grabs you, and you didn't quite get to the crest. And have you ever been there? <laughs> Face in the sand, feet going this way and that way, and arms going that way, and you come up with sand burns all over you. Been there, done that. God set boundaries there. They can only come so far, and they'll stop. It doesn't matter how much they rage, how hard the wind blows, they can only come so far. Why? God decreed. That's it. This is the high tide line. You cannot go past it. I don't care how hard it blows. It won't. Now a hurricane can come in and the surge will go higher than it normally does. But God says there's even a limit to that. It only goes so far. Now he compares that with God's people. Verse 23. But this people has a revolting and a rebellious heart. They're revolted and gone. He says, the waves go as far as I say. They come in, they go out. They come in, they go out. I set this in motion, and it happens 24 sevens. 
The tides come in, the tides go out. The surf's up, the surf's down. God has set that in a perpetual pattern, at least for now, and it just goes on. They go by the rules that have been set. But he says, people aren't like that. People aren't like the waves of the sea. I can't just set it and they will continue to do what I have ordained that they should do and even what they have agreed to do. They have a revolting and a rebellious heart. That's attitude. Neither say they in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God that gives rain, both the former and the latter, in his season. Now we have read various places how God will send the former and the latter rain to those who will obey him and serve him and turn to him. We have that knowledge, don't we? We've read it. We've seen it in the scriptures. All right. Now that we've heard it, Let's fear the Lord who can either bring it or withhold it. Doesn't that seem like a logical direction? I guess we need to work on our attitudes. If we have revolting, rebellious hearts, we pull away, we jerk the shoulder, we pull the head, we roll the eyes. We have lots of ways of showing our attitudes. And we all understand them, don't we? We've all done those things. We've all seen our children do those things. And they are universal. It doesn't matter what culture it is, what continent it's on, you have the same reactions. I found that people on every continent laugh and smile and have senses of humor. I found that people cry and die on all continents the same way. We're all humans. We all have human responses and natures. And we all have the same reactions. I've seen people in South Africa sit their jaw just like those women with the short hair. Different reason, same reaction. They're universal. God's the one that sends the former and the latter rain, and his hands are blessing and cursing. We can have it either way. Have it your way. You know? What do you want? You want blessing or do you want cursing? You can have it. Whichever you wish. Now there's no one here say, I think I take a helping of cursing, please. Would you bring me a full platter of that? Yeah, I want the 12-ounce. We'll talk about menus since you've been eating out so much. Attendance was down, you know, and it seemed like we were getting emptier, but even with the attendance down, it seems like the room is getting fuller. He gives us the former and the latter rain. He reserves us the appointed weeks of the harvest. God can make the harvest happen, or he can make you lose a crop. It just depends on how you react to him. 
Your iniquities have turned away these things, the former and the latter rain and the harvest, the blessings that should come. Your iniquities have turned away these things, and your sins have withheld good things from you. Our whole nation is coming under the curse of the Old Covenant, and the cursings of Leviticus and Deuteronomy are coming upon us. And those same cursings are coming upon the church now. Not just spiritually, but those who did not wake up spiritually now are going to get a dose of the physical cursing. And the destroyer of the Gentiles is on his way. For among my people are found wicked men. They lay wait as he that sets snares. They set a trap. They catch men. People who are just waiting to see if they can share their wrong attitude with you, who are looking for maybe sympathy or commiseration from you, who are self-pitying and want you to pity them, and they will drag you along until you have the same attitude they do. Because sin and attitude generally drags down more than righteousness will lift up. That's why God says, in so many words, have nothing to do with an angry man. If somebody is angry, somebody is bitter, God says, stay away from them. Do you believe God? Do, do, do you believe God? If you don't believe God, why are you here? I can give a sermon on child rearing and say, God says you don't love your child if you don't spank your child. But there are people who will shut their jaw, who will not believe God. God said it, but that psychologist didn't. He said you ought to reason with it. Now, there's a time for reasoning. There's a time for removal of privilege. But God says if you don't chasten them with the paddle in his word, in so many words, it simply cannot be misinterpreted. It's just bang, bang, bang. And yet some people will not. You can tell people you should have short hair, I mean long hair, and they will not do anything about it. You can tell some men, okay guys, finally found it, you can tell some men, you shall not have long hair, but even nature, not only nature, but God's apostle tells you, you should not have it. They are not going to cut it. I mean, you know, there are a lot of things in the Bible, perhaps, that... Eh, does it say it that clear? Maybe not. Maybe not. Some things may be a little ambiguous. You might be able to carefully squeeze through without doing it if you walk the rope just right. If you slant it just right. Some things, I, I don't know. Maybe not ultimately, but just for argument, let's say that. Some things you might slide by, not be able to prove it absolutely one way or another. 
But come on, something, I mean, you know, some things might be interpreted one way or another. Some things are just in black and white in so many words, and there's no, there's no way to interpret what was said. It's just there. And it still doesn't matter. We'll still do it our way. Thank you, little children. <laughs> of course, kids get that attitude sometimes too, don't they? They are bound and determined to do whatever it is they have in mind. And they will rebel. God is talking about that characteristic of little children of humility and meekness. Hard to come by. You know, and then... I've had some who weren't quite that way who would say, well, is my hair all right? Is it too short or is it too long? Men and women, I've had them both approach me. What's the simple attitudinal answer to that question? If the truth is a little elusive because God doesn't say a man's hair can only come to here and a woman's must come to there, Pick a spot as far as I agree how to reach. How long is long and how short is short? See, they want you to define it for them so they can get just as close to that line as they possibly can. That is an attitudinal problem. It isn't a truth problem. It's spirit. It's attitude. Now, the simple logical answer would be make absolutely sure it's long enough or absolutely sure it's short enough. Don't push for your way so hard that you put yourself in jeopardy. See, God wants us to learn to use wisdom. If he made this whole thing a book of weights and measures... You can only weigh this much. You must weigh this much. Your hair can be, you know, he could do centimeters or inches, whichever system he likes best. Cubits. Your hair, girls, must be a cubit long. That's 18 inches. You know, he could lay it out that way, couldn't he? Couldn't he have written the book that way? But what is his purpose with us? His purpose with us is for us to learn to make wise, sound, good judgments so we can rule the world. And all of these people that we were hearing about this morning, billions of them will be resurrected on the day that this day pictures the great white throne judgment, will have wise teachers who have learned to make good decisions. So God, in his utter sovereignty, his infinite wisdom, has not written a book so detailed that we do not have opportunity to learn to make wise decisions. So when God says, keep it short, we make sure it's short enough. When God says, wear it long, it's for your glory, we make sure we wear it long enough that there would be no question in God's mind if he saw us, if we were in compliance with his wishes or not. That's where attitude and spirit come in so importantly. 
Are we pushing the line? At Ambassador College, they had, between the co-eds, basically no touch rules. A quick hug you could get away with. Haven't seen you in a long time, you know. Big hug. Couldn't hold hands. Now, these are college-age students. These are adults, 18 to 22 years of age for the most part. No serious dating until you're a second-half senior. Don't even become emotionally involved and so on. And perhaps the rules sometimes went a little too far because those things are hard to completely control. But the no hand-holding and the no arm around and the no kissing rules were good, wise, and proper because those things basically are foreplay. And foreplay leads to other things. So the rule was, don't do that. And you were not supposed to go out into dark places as couples because you might be tempted to break the rules. But now, we were young and intelligent. And of course had perfect control. Didn't we? They had what they referred to in the forums as cliffhanging. Go out as close to the edge of the cliff as you can and hope you don't fall off. Push the rule as far as you can go, just don't fall off the cliff. And of course we figured maybe we would fall off the cliff. And we figured if we did fall off the cliff, we were young and strong enough and smart enough that we could keep from being injured or hurt. And our great youth and brilliance, we were stupid and dumb as a box of rocks, is what we were. But we didn't know that yet. Some fell off the cliff and got expelled. You want to do that? Go home and do it. Don't do it here. Most in the years that I were there was there didn't do those things. It got looser and looser and looser as time got on to where it became, I think, even worse than some of the worldly colleges because these were people who were little Christian, supposedly converted kids who wanted to prove they were just as carnal as anybody and may have wound up worse than a lot. It's all about attitude. What is your real attitude and what do you really want to do? Our kids today shouldn't be holding hands, putting their arms around each other and kissing each other. Shouldn't be doing it. Are they? I hope not. They'll only hurt themselves ultimately. You know, it's your marriage that you're going to wreck. It's your peace and safety that you could wreck. God has ordained that you should enter the marriage bed as virgins on both sides. 
That is ideally the way it should be. And you will have happier marriages and better lives if that's what you do. But if you do those things that are supposedly are supposed to be done only by married people, you're not hurting me. You're not hurting him or her. You're hurting your own marriage. You're hurting your eventual mate who will say, have you ever done that before with anyone else? Wouldn't it be nice to say, no, you're the first. Wouldn't that be exciting and nice to be able to say? It's kind of hard to say, well, uh, can we talk? You know, your toes start curling up in your shoes. Don't ask that question. Why go through that kind of embarrassment? Why go through that kind of sadness? Here you have someone who has come to believe, and all is not intelligent in youth, but somehow, anyhow, they have come to believe that you are the world's paragon of the greatest man on earth. or the most fabulous woman that ever walked. Somehow they've convinced themselves of that. And their little balloon of hope has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. And you've talked about some things, and you're preparing to talk about marriage, and maybe propose, or to hear a proposal, or whatever. And oh, you are so in love. But you haven't talked about that yet. but it's going to come up at some point. You may have to pop their balloon. That's hard when hope and expectation and excitement is so high and you're going to dash their feelings and hurt them. Hope I'm not giving this little talk too late. If I am, you just have to deal with it however you best can. But why mess your life up? Why dash the hopes and dreams of someone that you had hoped to marry? Of course, in the world today, it doesn't make any difference anyway. Oh, so what? Yeah. How many? Fifteen? Oh, no, no big deal. Two hundred? Ah, I can handle that. Now, that may be how they glibly approach it in the beer commercials. It's not the way it is. It's not the way it is when it's you and you trying to build a life together. And there's always something in your mind about, wonder how it was with so-and-so. So much better if it's exclusive. So much better if you're the only ones that have ever been together. If you don't know that, till you're trying to live with it, till you're trying to deal with it, then you find out the hard way that it's not near as happy, happy as you thought it would be. So I'm not going to stand here and tell you what the church will do if you do such a thing. And I could come at it from that direction. I'm coming at it from the direction of this is your life. Why louse it up? It's your life. You only get one. Deal with it with respect. 
Do you still respect me? Well, do you respect yourself? A lot of it's about attitude. Do you respect the life that God gave you and will you conduct it in a respectful, above-board manner in such a way that you can lead as good a happy, possible life as possible on this earth? You can do that or you can take it away from yourself. You know, your parents can't watch you all the time. They can't follow you 24-7. Some try and they plumb wear out trying to keep up. Now, they should do what they can to support you and help you and teach you and guide you in what kind of life you ought to lead, but they simply cannot watch you 24-7. It has to be ingrained in your emotions and feelings well ahead of time before you do get in a backseat with raging hormones that you simply cannot control and handle. You need to already know what you will or will not do. You need to have already set that in your mind and be convicted of it so that you can then live by your commitments and your convictions. It, is, doesn't, it won't do you a whole lot of good, believe me, to say, well, I think if that time comes, I can handle it. I'm me. I can handle it. Don't kid yourself. Those drives and urges are strong. And you can get ambushed very easily. And girls, there are experts out there who can say things to you that will get your little old emotions going in such a way that you'll lose it. Your mama tells you about them. Your daddy tells you about them. But you think you can handle it. You can only handle it if you deal with that, you study it out, you think it through, you know what you will do because you have set your mind. And you will also have made a covenant with yourself that you will keep yourself away from situations where you might lose control. Stay away from the cliff. <laughs> up to you. Nobody can prevent you. You will do what you will do. Others can help you. They can lead you. They can guide you, direct you. But it all comes down to you. So I'll guarantee you, if the things you want to do, you'll find a way. You will. It's your life. I've taken a little time here to include our young people, whether you be little bitty and don't even know what I'm really talking about yet, but naivete is pretty much gone in our society today. If you wait till a kid's six years old to have the talk, you're too late. <laughs> They've heard every word you've ever heard by the time they get through a kindergarten class. Teach him what he should know when he's young. And hopefully he'll have the control to keep his life in order. 
God has made some very wonderful things for married adults to do. But they're best enjoyed in that circumstance, and they bring all kinds of shame and regret and frustration done in any other context. So the things that can be the most rewarding, that can be the most enjoyable, that can be the most exciting, are only that way when they're done as God designed them to be done. God is not against male-female relationships and sexual relationships and intimacy between husbands and wives. He's all for it. He created it. He designed it. He's excited about it. He made it to be a wonderful thing. But Satan and man have perverted it, and in this world it has become a cheap kind of thrill that leads to frustrations and even suicides because of misuse. You can take anything God has made to be wonderful and make it bad. True of young people grappling with life, and it's also true of us as adults. God tells us, this is the way you should live. But it's not just our kids, it's not just the teenagers, it's all of us that have a revolting and rebellious heart, that have a deceitful and desperately wicked nature. Who can know it? Who can understand the depths of how human beings want to turn from God? This day pictures a time when billions of people who have made horrible messes of their lives will pop out of the ground and out of the water wherever they wound up when they died. And they're going to want to know how to do better. I really screwed my life up. I really made mistakes. I died a horrible death. I was miserable. I was suicidal. I was frustrated. I went to drugs, I tried alcohol, I tried men, I tried women, I tried this, I tried that. I really messed my life up. Somebody, please, show me how to live. Will you have the wisdom, the knowledge, the understanding to be able to say, come here, honey, I have the answer. You want to know what to do? Here's the way. Walk in it. Does anyone ever today ask you a question? Maybe they're having troubles. They're all upset. They're frustrated. They don't know what to do. I've thought about it. I've thought about it. I've prayed about it. I don't know what to do. What should I do? Well, let's see. Do you always have the answer? Do you always know what they ought to do? Do you have God's answer? Do you have your human reasoning that might for the moment make them feel a little bit better? You know what relieves the pressure of wanting to sin the easiest, the greatest, and the quickest? Sinning. You're not fighting anymore. You already did it. Now you feel better. 
And we say, well, okay, I feel better now. God forgive me. I gave in. I sinned. I'm sorry. Oh, now I feel even better because I repented. The pressure's all gone. You know what then happens? Pressure to do whatever it is you like to do that's wrong begins to build again. Anybody ever here ever smoked a cigarette? You know what relieves the desire quicker so that you don't want to smoke a cigarette? Smoke a cigarette. Boy, I don't need to smoke a cigarette. Five minutes later, man, I need to smoke a cigarette. It's hard not to do what we want to do. And we rebel against being told to do something we don't want to do. So therefore, we'll find any justification, any excuse to do so. Your sins have withheld the former and latter rains from you. For among my people are found wicked men. They lay wait as he that sets snares. They set a trap. They catch men. As a cage is full of birds, so are their houses full of deceit. Therefore they are become great and wax rich. Through deceiving, lying, cheating, stealing, they've become physically wealthy. They are waxed fat. They shine. Yes, they overpass the deeds of the wicked. They look the other way and let wicked things continue as long as they can prosper. doesn't matter. They judge not the cause, the cause of the fatherless, yet they prosper. David even lamented that. Why do the wicked seem to prosper? Well, you can carnally, physically have great gain by lying, cheating, and stealing. How do you prove that? Well, just look at the stockbrokers and politicians who lie, cheat, and steal their way to fortunes. That can be done. Through lying, cheating, and stealing, you can take things away from people and have it for yourself. You can become highly wealthy doing that. But what about the fatherless? The right of the needy? They don't think about that. They don't judge that. Shall I not visit for these things, says the Eternal? What he's talking about here is total selfishness, where I'll do anything to get my way. This is an attitudinal problem. It's a sin of the spirit, of the mind, of the attitude. Think I won't come and talk to you about this, says the Eternal? Shall not my soul be avenged on such a nation as this? Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says God. A terrible and horrible thing is committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests bear rule by their means, or at their back, or according to their false prophecies. And my people love to have it so. They love to be told things that will allow them to do what they want to do. They don't like to be told what they shouldn't do. What will you do in the end thereof? What will you do when the cause is finished and the effect begins to occur? We have the truth, essentially. So we are worshiping God in truth. 
How are we doing in spirit and attitude? I think that's what God is trying to get across to us in that section. If we have a problem, it's not truth, it's attitude. Sure, we can refine points of truth, we can learn a little better. But God did not write Revelation 3 about truth. He wrote it about attitude. I am rich and increased with goods, I have need of nothing spiritually. Wrong attitude. He did not condemn the churches at the end about knowledge. It's not what God's upset about. Read it. You've read it many times. It was attitude. So if we go away from here after today, let's think about attitude. I challenged us all as this feast began to make it as spiritually valuable as we possibly could. I have no idea how to grade how we did. You can think about the feast and you can write yourself a grade down, A, B, C, D, F, of how you think you did. And given selfishness and pride, ego, and given self-pity, you may give yourself or an A or an F. I don't know. But in the final analysis, it doesn't really matter what grade you give yourself. What really matters is what grade God thinks fits you. Because he's the one that will send us the former and the latter rain and the harvest, or who will not. We need to be honest. Some of us would be harder on ourselves than we should and grade ourselves way down and be discouraged. Some of us in our pride might grade ourselves too high. Those are things in human beings that happen. So I don't know what kind of grade to put on you, and I wouldn't even try. And I hesitate to put one on myself. I did what I did. I accomplished what I accomplished, and I missed out on what I missed out on. But let's go away from here determined, committed to work on that area that's not a Protestant problem. Theirs is truth, not always spirit and attitude. Ours is rarely truth, but spirit and attitude. It takes both to be a true believer, to be a true Christian. And that's the area that God condemns us for and says we are suffering in. So let's take Jeremiah's words to heart. John's in the book of Revelation. Jesus Christ, some of the things that Gordon read to us this morning about how we treat our enemies. I've got a long way to go in that area. Thanks for the kicking. Get you back. <laughs> no, I appreciated the things that he had to say, and it was very... Uh, it, it hurt, but it's encouraging to be reminded about my attitudes and how I need to approach different people, how I need to treat them, hopefully how they'll treat me, because we're in this together. 
Iron sharpens iron, and the reason God tells us to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together is that we might help shape each other to fit together perfectly in the world tomorrow so that Christ can have a unified bride who understands what to tell these people when they come up out of that ground and say, I lost it up, show me the way. Wouldn't it be nice to be there front and center and say, I truly have the answers. I went through it too. I learned the hard way, but I found the right way. You haven't found it yet. Here it is. Eat freely. Drink freely. Wouldn't it be nice to be there because you have friends, relatives who have died that you'd love to give a great big hug and shed some tears and say, I've missed you. Husbands, wives, children, miscarriages. It's all going to be healed. All going to be fixed. Don't worry about it. Yes, it hurt when they died. Yes, it hurt when a child that was growing in your womb died. It may very well be that God will resurrect those. They were lives. I don't know that Mr. Armstrong understood correctly that it had to take the breath of life before it would be resurrected. If that be the case, what's wrong with abortion? If it wasn't a human until it took a breath of life and couldn't be resurrected till then, until it takes a breath of life, it isn't human. If you don't want it, abort it. I don't think that's the way God thinks. I think he's more loving and more compassionate than that. And if it's wrong to murder a baby that's growing in its mother's womb, wouldn't a merciful God say, that was a child, I want it. God loves us more than we have ever loved another human being. No father, no mother ever wanted a child worse than Almighty God wants his children. Never did he want that child that never got a breath just as much as he wanted the one that had a breath. You did. Some of you women have spent years mourning over a child you had but didn't have. I don't know how many in this room, but I imagine it's quite a few. You've lost sleep. It's affected your whole nervous systems. It's affected your daily happiness in lives. It's frustrated you deeply because you felt like a failure. Why couldn't I bring to life this life that I held? God's going to fix that, girls. I believe it. He loves us. He loved the whole world 
So much, he sent his only begotten son, whom he loved more than any other being in this universe, that we might have life and have it more abundantly. There is nothing God cannot fix. As I stand here, I believe that baby that you never helped, you will hope. That's what this day is really all about. Now, don't you want to worship with your whole heart a God who can and will accomplish that?